Thank you, Dr. Gollins, and thank you so much, everyone, for having me come. I can't tell you what a privilege it is, and I'm so excited to speak to you about transition and also hopefully uh, leave a few minutes to hear about your experiences with this population and maybe we can problem solve together because I certainly don't have all the answers. So the title of my talk is Healthcare Transition in Young Adults with Type 1 Diabetes, and I have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. So the objectives today are first to understand some of the background, the developmental issues facing this population and their unique healthcare needs, which are a little bit different and on the precipice between pediatric and adult care, oftentimes young adults with type 1, to review the research on healthcare transition outcomes for this population, and finally to discuss some new data that I have about the challenges in transition care reported by adult endocrinologists. So we're going to start with the case vignette. One of the reasons I got so interested in transition is because when I was a fellow at Boston Children's, we saw a lot of patients like this coming in. So a 22-year-old male with type 1 diabetes comes in to the Children's Hospital ER in DKA, so pH 7.18, bicarb 10, hyperglycemic, high A1C, 13%. He says he omitted Atlantis over the past two days and generally has poor adherence. He was diagnosed with type 1 at age 7 and fell in with us at Boston Children's until 19. So now he's 22. When I asked him what happened, he said he just felt too old to be in a pediatric clinic and decided himself not to go back. So kind of self-transitioned. He doesn't recall any transition preparation, so what does that mean? Asked him about things like, did anyone talk to you about going to adult care? Did anyone give you your records? Did anyone give you um, any kind of checklist? Or No, nothing. Um, he had his first and only adult endocrine visit a year after he left at 19. Um, he doesn't remember the name of the person, but he said it was at Jocelyn. He did a call over there today, and he's actually been calling the children's, um, if you look in the medical system in our trip, had been calling on weekends to get prescription refills from various fellows, and thus had been keeping his insulin supply going. Right, so the picture shows someone falling through the cracks, and I think this is not an uncommon story. Sometimes we don't even have a chance to transition someone successfully because they self-transition out before that. And so one of the things to think about as we go through is, you know, what is the solution for a situation like this? So let's go through some background first. And part of the background for looking at transition um, necessarily involves just adult, young adult development. And if you think about chronic disease self-management, there's this construct of pediatrics. So most of what we do in pediatrics where the patient is on the left-hand side enveloped in the, the family and being taken care of primarily by caregivers. And then there's the adolescent stage where the patient starts to separate from the family, sometimes successfully and sometimes not so much, and generally a lot of conflict along the way as the self-care develops. And then the ultimate goal is that the patient will be self-sufficient managing the chronic disease, but that the family will still be supporting them in this endeavor. And sometimes that happens when a patient is still in pediatrics, and sometimes it happens years later. So these stages don't necessarily correlate with the type of clinical care that a patient is receiving. Um, if you look at a continuum of development from adolescence to adulthood, there is a typical definition of adulthood where you accept responsibility, make independent decisions, financially independent, and independently forming your own beliefs and values. 
values. But there's an emerging adulthood period that's been discussed in the literature that is somewhere in between adolescence and adult. And this is developmentally where we see a lot of these patients. It's been defined by Jeffrey Arnett, who developed this terminology as early and late emerging adulthood. So the early, between 18 and 24 years, typically is characterized by competing educational, social, and economic priorities, not being fully independent or ready to accept responsibilities, and still maybe seeing some of that adolescent rejection of adult control. And this is going to limit your receptiveness to change. It's important to think about this developmental period because there can be a misfit between the developmental maturity of a given patient and the expectation of providers. So you're a 22-year-old adult, you should be able to do X, Y, and Z. And sometimes, depending on the developmental continuum and where the patient is, they're not able to do that. Then, we have late emerging adulthood where finally we're seeing assumption of traditional adult roles and ready to become an active participant in self-management. This is the period when lifelong patterns of behavior are finally set. Howard Walpert, who's one of my mentors, um, said, has said to me many times, like he just thinks magically at age 27, people just start, you know, start, um, you know, having a shift in, in how they self-manage diabetes. But that's more of a window for opportunity for healthcare intervention. But the problem is that healthcare transition is often occurring before the stage, and so it's something that's important to think about. And I think taking time to assess where a given patient is at and really individualized care um, is a relevant consideration. So type 1 diabetes, we know that there's a higher risk of adverse diabetes-related outcomes in emerging adults with diabetes, poor glycemic control, appearance of long-term complications, and early mortality. And I could give a whole talk just on the various studies in this area. I'm just going to give an example from the Diabetes UK cohort study, study of 23,000 individuals diabetes diagnosed before age 30. They did a case control evaluation that was published in Diabetes Care several years ago. They looked at deaths of patients um, that died before they were 40. They looked at case notes from about 90, or 98 um, of these deaths, and 51 were from acute causes, so 24 acute diabetes complications, severe hyperglycemia, ketoacidosis. 15 accidents, so unclear if they type of leukemia. 12 suicides or possible suicides, 34 deaths from chronic diabetes complications, and 13 that were unrelated. What's so interesting to me every time I look at this paper is the risk factors that are highlighted for premature death in young adults with type 1 diabetes. The ACORN score is a measure of socioeconomic status, and if you have a higher score, you have lower socioeconomic status. So patients on for that second one down, the ACORN score on the right-hand side, the chronic deaths, there's an odds ratio of 5.3 for the highest ACORN score, the young diabetes-related death. And then living alone um, makes you think about severe hypoglycemia in particular, an odds ratio of 4.4 for acute deaths. And then at the bottom, things that are no surprise, psychiatric referral, history in the chart, or history of drug abuse, um, also being correlated with significantly higher odds of acute deaths. So odds ratios of 4.6 and 5.7. So things that point us in the direction of those patients that may be at highest risk and help frame our thoughts more important when we think about healthcare transition. Um, so now we're going to move on to talking about the transition process, really synthesizing what we just discussed with 
developmental stage of the patient and background in terms of outcomes being medically poor for young adults, how can we set up a transition um, to optimize success? And to do that, we really need to know first what's going on in transition in the United States, and that's been a bit of a challenge. Um, so healthcare transition has been defined in the literature as the planned and purposeful movement of young adults from child-centered to adult-oriented healthcare systems. And recent best practice guidelines from the AAP, American Association of Family Practice, and um, College of Physicians, they were published in Pediatrics in the summer of 2011. And they call for healthcare transition as a basic standard of high-quality medical care. And they outline some ways to go about it, but it's all expert consensus. And the ADA also recently published clinical practice guidelines on healthcare transition for young adults with diabetes in the fall of 2011, um, similarly based on expert consensus. And I'm sure many of you have read that article really highlight that published data and clinical resources are limited for this population. If we look at what is known, there have been many studies in Canada and Europe um, looking at delays in care, decreased follow-up visits, increased post-transition hospitalizations. That was a really nice study um, in Ontario um, by Miranda Nackle and David Stanman looking at much higher hospitalization rates after transition in a nationalized healthcare system. And there are studies showing broader patient satisfaction with the transition. The problem is that it's easier to study transition in countries where there's a national healthcare system because generally they've been able to either mine a national database or registry of patients or there's a mandated transition age generally. For example, in Canada it's 18 and in the UK and the same. And so they're able to automatically look at a data set of patients and say that if you're over 18, you are in adult care. And so outcomes that way. And part of the problem in the US is that one of my mentors, Dr. Wolfsorff, takes care of you know, 30 year olds in pediatrics, and then there are some kids that leave pediatrics at 17. So we have no idea where anybody is, and it's very hard to, to study outcomes systematically in the US, and even harder to get a national generalizable sample. So it's been easier to do in other countries. And so if you're looking at transition, easier to look into that literature. So, less empiric data in the US, there is some emerging work in transition outcomes, uh, transition readiness and transition program development, um, particularly some nice work with um, questionnaires to assess this construct of readiness. But again, readiness doesn't translate to do you actually get to the other side successfully and, and get established into care. So I'm going to read you some quotations from qualitative data. When I was developing the survey that I'm going to present in a few minutes, um, I first did a series of five focus groups of young adults between 22 and 30 with type 1 diabetes and just made them completely open, asked them to talk for 90 minutes about their transition experiences, and then did a thematic analysis to identify major themes that emerged and then use those in developing a survey. So a major theme, and this is no surprise, is just a non-purposeful transition, right? Kind of like that guy in the case that I presented in the beginning, um, just a lack of purposeful preparation. So didn't really have any sort of, you know, hand-holding or anything like that wish I had. I guess I would have liked more help with selecting the current doctor and maybe saying, you know, you're getting to be 18, you might want to consider transitioning, let's talk about it, and we need to figure out how you're going to be taking care of yourself when you're on your own. There wasn't really much discussion about it other than where I was going to go. Yeah, I just had to kind of take it from there. 
During college, I went to the endocrinologist less than once a year and didn't really do much with the information. Nobody noticed, because suddenly I was managing it all by myself and not doing a good job. I was switching doctors, so no one even knew how often I'd been. That's someone who's not doing well with her diabetes management now, A1C of 11. Um, here's another major theme, was just, without even much prompting, these patients just started telling us what they thought we should do to make the transition better. So a major theme was just recommendations for improved systems in the transition process. For example, I had a whole visit and we just talked about the transition. That was helpful. The first time you sit down with your adult endocrinologist, they should say, I was able to correspond with Dr. So-and-so just to show that they've done a little bit of work, a little research in your history. I would have liked some sort of warning, like a packet of information or something, to help ease the shock. Or how about having a nurse call incoming young adults? How about a peer advisor, someone close to the patient's age, that had been there and done that, you know, to help you if you need anything. Support groups, that's one thing that was really lacking in my transition, looking back. Feedback once you transition, ask the patient how it went and what they think of their new doctor. So the qualitative data kind of frame, you know, where we're headed with this and really think, how can we more systematically in a larger population try to figure out what's going on in transition? So this is what led to um, doing a survey study of young adults with type 1 diabetes that are in adult care. So I think we could probably all think before I even present this what some of the you know, problems are going to be with trying to do this kind of research um, and asking people to look back at their transition. The aims were to describe characteristics of healthcare transition in a large group of young adults with type 1 diabetes. So to evaluate the association, if any, between healthcare transition factors and glycemic control. So if you had a good transition, A, what does that mean? And B, if you had a good transition, are you going to be doing better now with your diabetes? And then finally, to examine just more generally speaking, um, patient-related and healthcare-related factors associated with glycemic control in this population. A hypothesis that young adults with inadequate transition preparation are more likely to report a prolonged gap between pediatric and adult diabetes care, and that young adults with inadequate transition preparation are more likely to have suboptimal current glycemic control. So making a hypothesis that transition matters and that a more successful preparation on the pediatric side is gonna be beneficial down the road. So the methods were um, survey development. So we developed an 85 item survey to evaluate the transition experiences of young adults with type one. The survey was developed based on an extensive literature search. So both in type one, but also in other chronic illnesses. So we drew from CF, from sickle cell, and um, from this general pediatric complex care patient population. We uh, used qualitative data from the focus groups, some of which I just showed you. Um, developed an overarching conceptual model and really pulled the model and um, expanded it to make the survey domains. We had multiple expert, experts review it for construct validity, and then we met with about a dozen young adult patients and went through it item by item to um, cognitively interview it and make sure that it made sense to them. Uh, and then excluded them from the ultimate study. So the survey domains included diabetes history, characteristics of pediatric versus adult diabetes care, so how are they different, reasons for a transition, uh, transition timing, preparation, satisfaction, barriers to transition, current support system, and diabetes self-care, and then demographics. Uh, we included patients who were 22 to 30, 
excluding those who were 18 to 20, 21, because we thought that the issues are completely different in that population, especially surrounding college, and wanted to try to make it cleaner. Um, but I think that population needs to be studied. And a type 1 diabetes diagnosed under 18, while in pediatrics, but currently followed in the adult clinic at Jocelyn. We sent the survey of three male waves, um, which really I was a fellow, so it was me stuffing 500 envelopes to an electronic web option and reminder phone call. So this is a problem. We didn't have email addresses for these patients. And so in the end, we mailed the survey, and then we called everybody and said, like, hey, we have an electronic version. Can I send it to you on email? And they would say yes, and that's when we started doing better with our response rate. And also, we offered an iPad uh, raffle to somebody. Um, and that really worked. People were emailing me to do it because they wanted to win the iPad. So I would recommend that for study research. So we sent the survey to 512. Um, we had some ineligibles and some undeliverables. So the denominator ended up being 484, and we got, you know, by just like calling them over and over, finally got 258 surveys for response rate of 53%. I think that's pretty good. A lot of studies have like closer to 30% literature, but it's still just. You know, it's, it's hard to get a response from this population. And if you look at surveys, for example, of providers um, or other populations, you know, you, you see higher. But um, at least we got half back. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the, the non-responders. Um, so here are respondent characteristics. Current age was 26.7 on average, 38% male, so more females, 92% Caucasian. So we can see areas for future research calling to us because it was a very um, homogeneous population. Diabetes duration of 16.7 years, and age of transition was 19.5. 30% received pediatric care at Jocelyn. Now the other 60% received, or 70% received care from 93 different pediatric centers around the United States. So you had this cohort, and, and we separated it out and, and compared them, and there was never any significant difference in people that had transitioned within the institution versus those coming in from the outside. But most people were coming in from lots of different places, for example, to go to college in Boston or grad school. 81% um, were at least college educated, and 90% were privately insured. So studies done in Massachusetts where insurance is mandated, but still not a large population of public insurance. So the non-responders were 45% female, less, uh, still, still, you know, fairly Caucasian, that's not significantly different, um, but less were privately insured. They had a higher A1C. And um, I'm going to show you the A1C. Yeah, A1C was 8.1 in this population. And then there was no difference in age. So right away, we can see the bias in this, that they had a higher A1C, they were less Caucasian, and they were more publicly insured. Um, and I think that you know the reason that you say this now is just to go through the results with a grain of salt and really say that whatever problems we see in the transition in this population are likely going to be amplified in other populations. And so we need to think about that and say, hey, if we're seeing poor preparation in this selected population, then what are we going to see in people that didn't respond, or even worse, people that aren't even at Jocelyn because they aren't hooked into care at all. And so I think um, that's something that I personally am passionate about and really trying to think of ways to get to this other section. And so if anyone has any ideas, let's talk about that. So why did you transition? Um, the most important reason um, came out like this. So too old for pediatrics, people were saying things like, I just didn't feel comfortable anymore, I wanted to go somewhere more um, adult, more mature, 28%. Um, provider suggestion, so my pediatric provider told me it was time, 25%. I went to college and so transitioned at that point, 17%. I didn't like my pediatric provider. That ended up 
on cognitive interviews really being more like a developmental mismatch. Like maybe you liked them when you were younger, but it wasn't the right fit anymore, 16%. Um, moved away, 12%, and then parent suggestion was not a big player here. <laughs> People don't listen to their parents, <laughs> I guess. But it's interesting because if you, I've also do some transition general paid stuff, and if you look at a complex care population where the patients are more disabled, the parents are, are the major driver of transition, right? So diabetes is just different. Okay, so time lapse between PD and adult care. I'm very interested in this variable because we know in the literature that people that don't have frequent clinic follow-up don't have great outcomes, right? So this, it's a concern um, going into the study. And so we had about 35% reporting um, a gap in care of greater than six months. So again, think about the generalizability and think about you know, who's out there that's not answering the survey and, and the gaps are likely higher. It's still a significant portion. So responding A1C values, um, the point of this figure is really just to show that pre and post transition A1C are so tightly correlated, right? What can you do to, to change that? Um, here's the ADA target, so minimal proportion of patients under 7% at this age, and tight correlation, um, a P less than 0001 for all of these A1Cs across the transition. So, Here's transition preparation. This is where we really got into the focus group data and pulled out the most important things that people were talking about for transition preparation. We asked patients to tell us if these things happened to them. And then we asked an overall preparation question. So, did you ever have a pediatric visit without your parent in the room? 78%. Did people discuss screening tests for your retinopathy, microalbuminuria, 69%. Um, discuss independent management of your diabetes, 61%. Did anyone tell you where to go for an adult provider and give you a recommendation and name? Um, just about half, and the same for contact information. Um, did you have a transition visit? Did you meet a new adult provider before transition, or did you get any materials? So care summary, checklist, we gave a few choices. Um, all those are less than 15%. So not you know, very impressive in terms of the level of preparation that these patients were receiving. And we had an overall question that said, to what extent did you feel prepared or unprepared to leave your child or adolescent diabetes providers? And if you answered mostly or completely prepared, it correlated at less than um, P01 for all of those eight items that I just showed you. And so we ended up using this variable as a dichotomous variable in all of our regression analyses to symbolize preparation because it was so tightly correlated with each and every one of those individual items. So I'm going to show you a couple of, um, well, I'll show you this first. And then. So uh, preparation and satisfaction. Overall, how prepared or unprepared were you? Overall, how satisfied or unsatisfied? About 70%, I'm sorry, 60% in each one, and they were uh, very highly correlated. So preparation and satisfaction were essentially the same. Okay, so this is a regression model. So logistic regression, we're looking at gaps between pediatric and adult diabetes care as the outcome. So dichotomous outcomes, if you have a prolonged gap of greater than six months or not, um, and then the predictors are in the column on the left-hand side. So the top one, if you are mostly or completely prepared for a transition, your odds of a gap were 0.47, so very highly significant. So people who were reporting strong preparation had decreased gaps in care. Um, pediatric A1C kind of bordered on significance, but it wasn't age, education, gender, 
didn't, but uh, if you had greater than or you know, three pediatric visits before transition, then you had significantly decreased odds of a gap. Um, so odds ratio of 0.35, also highly significant. So start to get a sense of some of these systems issues, preparing a patient or having frequent visits, keeping them in the rhythm, maybe is going to help decrease your gap. But then the question looms, does that even matter for glycemic control later, right? So that's the, that's the thing. So we know that gaps in care, this is encouraging. Um, and then the next model that we did is looking at Yandabelt A1C. So this is a linear regression model. So it's a continuous outcome of hemoglobin A1C post-transition and looking at, again, these predictors on the left-hand side. So if you're mostly completely prepared for transition, not significant. So it's interesting, in the bivariate analyses, if you just looked at preparation in A1C, it was very highly significant, like a beta of negative 0.5, so an A1C of 0.5% less. But then as soon as you put the next variable, the pediatric A1C, into the model, it immediately loses significance. So what I mean is that the main driver of glycemic control after transition is just glycemic control before transition. Does that make sense? So it's just if you're going to go into the transition with suboptimal control, it's hard to affect change on that variable. And so transition preparation, as soon as you added that, lost significance, did not remain significant. Um, current age was very slightly significant, so via negative 0.08 means an A1C of 0.08% less. And then education was very significant. So if you were at college education or greater, your A1C was 0.5% less, again significant. And then none of these other variables were significant. I was very worried about recall bias because I think that this kind of research calls out for prospective design, which a fellow can't do, right? So um, I did a sensitivity analysis and looked at those who just transitioned a year ago, three years ago, and said, are the data, are the results any different? And they weren't. Everything was exactly the same, even in people that had just transitioned more recently. So that was the sensitivity analysis. So the limitations, um, I think I've touched on them already. So non-response bias is a concern. Who didn't respond to the survey and how would that change the results? Recall bias, we're asking people to look retrospectively back at their transition instead of prospectively measuring it as we go. Um, generalizability, so highly educated, relatively advantaged population made it to Jocelyn, and again, who are those people who, who haven't? And unmeasured factors that I'm interested in personally that might be associated with transition in A1C, things like self-determination or resilience, self-efficacy, things that are more difficult to measure, but that I think um, likely play a large role in, in someone's ultimate success. So those are the limitations, and I think in summary we can say um, report of suboptimal transition preparation is associated with prolonged absent care, that was clear. But better transition preparation was not significantly associated with post-transition A1C. There was a very strong influence of pre-transition A1C and education. And so these data suggest that the typical preparation activities, so things that we looked at like you know, having a transition visit or getting a provider name or referral, having visits alone, those things don't seem to have a major positive influence on longer-term outcomes. So in future work, what can we do to make them have an effect, right? What can we do to kind of amp up the preparation so that it actually makes a difference and empower patients to transition more effectively, improve handoffs so that establishment of care is stronger, 
And then once patients arrive on the adult side to improve young adult-centered care, um, you know, on both sides, but really on the adult side so that you can try to sustain um, those that are coming in without a gap and, and improve their outcomes. Um, so that was the primary analysis. So after I completed this analysis, I was really interested in what the study could could tell me, oh, um, what the study could tell me about specifically what I could do to design the transition intervention for pediatric care to, to make this better. And so I went back to a series of questions that we didn't use in the primary analysis about specific barriers to establishment of adult care. So what did the patients think the specific barriers were to, to getting them hooked in? And looked at those with that gap outcome and tried to see if we could pull some things to um, develop an intervention. So again, the goal to understand the specific barriers to establishment of adult care and their relative importance to the young adults in the survey sample. So I'm just going to briefly go over this because I think it's really interesting. These are barriers. So asking patients on a scale of one to four, not a barrier, small barrier, moderate or major, how much of a barrier were these specific things for you? So for example, you didn't get a provider name. Was that a barrier or could you just find one yourself? Um, about 45% or 47% said that that was a some level of barrier, with 21% saying it was moderate or major. Um, competing priorities was the other big one, so 43% endorsed just too busy competing life priorities as the primary barrier to getting hooked into adult care. Um, some had difficulty getting an appointment, so about 40%. Less of an issue to not receive provider contact info or to be upset about leaving pediatrics. I'm probably happy to leave pediatrics. Um, and then uh, insurance problems. Again, in Massachusetts, not really very informative, but not a big factor. And so for me, when I see things like the provider name, difficulty getting appointment and provider contact info, I think those are interesting because they're more easily modifiable than things like competing life priorities, right? So looked at odds ratios of gap greater than six months between pediatric and adult care. So for example, if you said that not getting an adult provider name was a moderate or major barrier, um, then your odds of gap were 6.1%. Or sorry, 6.1 odds ratio, which is huge, huge odds ratio. Same thing for adult contact info, 5.3 odds ratio. And competing life priorities, 5.2. And insurance problems, appointment problems, and being upset leaving pediatrics were less so. So I think we can conceptualize this as really systems-related barriers versus more patient-related. So it, a lack of an adult provider name or contact info, we can fix those, right? We can try to develop. Oh, yeah, good question. Yeah. Do you think that given the population that we're looking at, that this is more to do with their insight or lack thereof? I mean, is it really difficult to get the provider contact information when you're 23 years old? Right, exactly. I think so. Like, do, are they entitled? Do they just think that we should be, maybe they, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. in focus groups, this came out, and these items made it into the survey because they came out in focus groups. You know, patients saying things like, nobody told me where to go, or someone just said, go to the Jocelyn, and nobody told me who to see there. I feel like that says more about the population and the specific barrier of the person than if we gave them the name and contact info. That, that would actually change that. I'm not sure it would change that. I'm curious about it. Yeah. You know, I think it's a great point. I think it, I think we should prospectively look at this, and I also think that it should be studied in different populations, mm -hmm. right? So clearly both of those things are items on the agenda. I still think that it's informative 
in, in the strength of the relative importance of each barrier, and that if they're really given this menu of barriers and they're endorsing the adult provider name as the big issue, then you know maybe that can be addressed. And at least at Children's, it seems like we, we definitely could do a better job with having people uh, know where to go. And I think things like developing a referral base in the U.S. of providers that want to see young adults with type 1 on the adult side and things like that where patients are getting purposely referred um, may help. So interesting food for thought. Um, and so when I saw this, I was interested in, in getting into the adult provider side more. As a pediatric provider, you know, I wasn't sure if adult endocrinologists that don't work at places like Jocelyn or Barry Center, right, but out there in the country, do they like taking care of type 1s? Are they, you know, informed about taking care of this population? What is going on out there in terms of transition? So I'm going to briefly show you results in the last few minutes that are hot off the presses of a national survey of adult endocrinologists. So... The goals here were to describe experiences reported by adult endos across the country caring for young adults. So if you get out of Jocelyn, you know, what are the clinical resources, what are the barriers reported by adult endocrinologists caring for this population, and what are areas for possible intervention, right? So we're heading towards trying to design an intervention. Um, Web-based survey, you know, we use patient survey data, we use provider interviews to develop the items, um, did cognitive testing, asked about practice description, transition patterns, importance of preparation, young adult diabetes care, so resources, barriers, recommendations for improvement, and demographics. So we did a, a web survey, emailed to any endocrinologist, and maybe, maybe some of you in the room have done it. I don't know. Has anyone, maybe somebody completed it recently? <laughs> maybe not, but um, anyone listed as endocrinology or diabetes in the AMA master file, excluding trainees or pediatric providers, um, was sent out four email waves and was associated with an ADA or GDRF donation with completion. And there were 4,151 providers, and uh, the company that did it for me told me that only like 1,000 even opened the email. So of those, we got 467 um, surveys, so about, about 10%, um, and 47 states were represented. So 20 in the north, 20% northeast, 15% midwest, 33% south, and 32% west. And so just real quick, we have a population that is about 60% male, 78% Caucasian. Um, somehow the age is not on there. I don't know what happened, but um, about only 30, 30% of them are less than or equal to 45 years old. Um, it's a pretty um, experienced population, so um, most people have been practiced for at least 10 years. And 51% urban, 40% suburban, 9% rural, 40% academic medical center. And people um, reported percent of patients with type 1 diabetes to be about 22% the wide standard deviation compared to 54% for type 2, that's a type O. So transition activities, do you ever review pediatric records? Do you get them? The blue is that often or always happens and the red is I think that's important or very important. So 38% get a chance to review these records regularly and 73% um, think it's important or very important. Do you get a patient transition care summary? Um, from the pediatric provider, very small amount, but a high proportion thought that would be important or very important. Communication with pediatric provider, also with low frequency, 12%, and um, many providers, but less, 37% think that would be important or very important. Joint meeting is not happening, um, and the question will ask whether it needs to. 47% uh, report a parent at the first visit, and about the same, uh, think that's an important or very important aspect of transition. And then, has the patient taken part in some sort of transition program and is coming to you from that 
22% said oftener always, and 36, and those all academic medical centers, and 36% thought that would be important. Um, and only in very few are actually participating in transition programs, less than uh, 5%. So clinical resources for young adult patients with type 1. The blue is uh, current uh, or easy access, and the red is need additional access. So 83%, for example, um, have current easy access to a diabetes nurse educator, and 17% endorse needing additional access. Uh, for mental health, 38% endorse current easy access, and about half um, would like additional access. I think that's relevant. The dietitian um, seems to not be as much of an issue. And uh, exercise physiology, we asked about it. I'm surprised that as many had it as reported here, 15% versus 32% need additional access. Care coordination um, was a significant difference, so 14% reporting current easy access and 39% need additional access. And then interpreter services was the final thing with about half reporting current easy access and the rest, 11% uh, need additional access. So what I need to do now, I literally just got these data a couple days ago and tried to throw some into this presentation to give you a sense of what's going on, but clearly this needs to be broken down by region of the country, by practice type, by academic versus private practice, to so really dig into these 500 providers um, and figure out what's going on. Suggestions for optimizing care. We asked, you know, what would help you taking care of young adults with type 1 diabetes? Increased administrator support, more time to spend with patients, continuing medical education modules for young adult care, support groups for young adults, online resources for transition coordination, improved reimbursement rates. And people generally thought these things would be very helpful. There wasn't a lot of differentiation, which is nothing clear, um, nothing clear to me in terms of developing intervention. And then finally, do you enjoy seeing young adults with type 1 diabetes? 75%. Would you like to see more? Do they take more time than, than older patients? And do they take more resources than older patients in about half? for all of those, and I think there's some bias inherent in this because if you're doing the survey, clearly you have some interest in this population. Um, so given that, I think it, it sheds a little bit of light on the underlying issues. <coughs> so stay tuned for more information on that study. So let's pull together some conclusions, and then I'd love to um, hear from the crowd experiences you've had with transition or taking care of um, this population with type 1 diabetes. But I don't have any overarching, you know, grand uh, solutions for this problem of transition in young adults. And one of my research assistants um, was getting her MPH, and she uh, did a talk on this for her co-students, and she showed me this figure she made, and I was like, that's perfect. That's basically what is going on in transition, right? So you have pediatric care, faith, trust, and pixie dust, and then adult care. And so maybe you'll make it to the other side, and maybe you happen to have a pediatric provider who does everything right, and your care is coordinated, and it works out, but maybe the other one doesn't. And it just is kind of up to chance, and there's not a lot of systematic processes for getting the majority of patients through a successful transition. So I think we need to get Tinkerbell out of the picture and really make this more systematic, and that's my main conclusion. How do we do that? I think we need to, there's some more work to do first. And I think the first thing is cross-sectional studies in more diverse populations. And I think Josh's work is going to be important for that and just more cross-sectional information from other places that are not Jocelyn, right? And that have more, potentially more breadth, especially in things like insurance rates where Massachusetts was not able to shed light on that. 
I think we need longitudinal research. I think we need transition cohorts where we can follow people over time and get rid of some of the bias inherent in cross-sectional research. And that's going to be very informative for helping to develop solutions for transition in the U.S. I think that development and study of formal programs with goals to decrease gaps in care and improve outcomes are obviously important. But I think that those programs are often expensive to do, and a counseling intervention may or may not be sustainable for places across the country, which is kind of why I was trying to get at that national survey. And so I also wonder what can we offer pediatric and adult practices for more immediate aid. And as part of this um, transition resource development for the Endocrine Society, and they're available online, and I can send anybody those, but they're essentially, um, by expert consensus, a series of things that you can print off, like a checklist, a care summary, um, handouts about typical young adult diabetes health issues. Theoretically, a packet of information that if you were an adult endo in Nebraska, you could print out and use to coordinate transition. And all this hasn't been studied or validated, but I think is another idea for a way that we can work on transition if you're not in a place that has a funded um, pediatric and adult side that can you know, do this, these ideal programs to shepherd patients through. So another idea and something that I'm happy to um, talk about more. So um, I just want to thank, so a lot of this work was done during my fellowship, so I was funded by the Harvard Pediatric Health Services Fellowship and the Hearst Foundation at Jocelyn. I have a kind of a, I work at Children's, but the people at Jocelyn were nice enough to let me do the study, namely Howard Walpert, who's an adult provider there. Um, Jonathan Peoplestein is my primary health services mentor. Lori LaFell has been um, helpful in um, Jocelyn as well on the pediatric side, and Mary Lambert Hulls doing the focus groups with me. And then Dr. Wolfsorf is my um, primary mentor at Children's, as well as Eric Rhodes and uh, Ken Kleinman who helped me with statistics, and then my RA at the bottom who um, stuffed envelopes with me. <laughs> Lots of paper cuts. So thank you so much, everybody, and I'd love to hear about your experiences.
looked at 22 and up for this research because that ish, that those years are so different. When I did the focus groups, a lot of patients were saying things like, I didn't go to student health, I would see my pediatric endo when I went home on winter break, and then I would try to like get hooked into an adult endo as college ended and, and just avoid student health because they didn't know about diabetes. So I think um, a college student intervention is very important. Now, is it going to be through student health? I'm, I don't know. It's tough. Another on this observation that we're learning from the Helmsley Exchange, which you're yes. part of, is that many adult type 1 patients are getting care from primary care doctors right. and not endocrinologists. Exactly. And much more than pediatric. If you look at, you know, over 85% of pediatric type 1s are in pediatric endo centers, but then we don't have a great number for the latter, but we, we know that that's true. And so I think that needs to be examined as well. And I think prospective research looking at kids transitioning and seeing where they go would be helpful in elucidating that. And the exchange, I think, would be a, a good uh, vehicle for, for research, too. Thanks for coming, Kate. Um, one of the issues that we've tried to address most recently is sort of the, the concept of how one defines transition. So we're defining transition both as who's sitting across the table from the patients and pediatric endocrinologists and adult endocrinologists. And then secondly is the concept you alluded to of transition readiness. So it, it seems logical that one of the uh, areas to look at going forth is how to assess transition readiness both from the clinician's perspective as well as from the patient's perspective. Yeah in terms of all those issues of assuming adult roles yeah. in their lives and in their diabetes self-management. I think that's going to be a much bigger issue because I imagine that there's often some disconnect between how the clinician perceives the patient's readiness to transition versus yeah. the Yeah, I mean, patients. it's like that, um, you know, it's like in the beginning when we were looking at this figure, let's try to find a bit of emerging adulthood, and I think it's a huge issue, um, you know, this idea of that, there's a misfit, right, between the developmental maturity of the patient and expectations of providers. And you're totally right. There's this idea of transition to self-care and then transfer to adult diabetes care. And sometimes the two are not occurring at the same time. And I think pediatric providers need to be aware, both sides, right, need to be aware of this happening. The other thing that I think your data very nicely points out might speak to your point that a transition doctor might not make a difference, that yeah. the patient is the same. Yeah, whether the pediatrician is sitting across the table or the adult doctor is sitting across the table, the pre-transition A1C was pretty tightly correlated to the post, at least in the group that responded to the questionnaire. So maybe disentangling whether the patient is more adult or less adult from actually moving them from the pediatric doctor to the adult doctor might help in reducing the gap Yes, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. Hi, you mentioned um, like having a transition visit, and I'm not sure how you define that, or also, um, you know, if you were to develop a transition visit or have specific criteria, what do you think is most important? Yeah, the way I defined it in the questionnaire, it says, um, did you have like a pediatric clinic visit just to talk about transition to adult care? So it wasn't like a big description, it was essentially, was, and, and some providers will tell you they do this, like they'll tell you they have patients come in and just sit and talk about it, but most kids just like that case, right, just don't come back. Um, I, I think that, 
I think that nationally what people are talking about more and more is starting early so you don't miss them, so they don't just take off and not come back, like starting at 14, 15, 16, to have these visits where you at least bring it up so that, um, so that if they do take off, then they've had some preparation. I think, um, you know, what you just pointed out about the difference between uh, transfer and their readiness, you know, to transition to self-care, no matter who's taking care of them. I think that that's something for sure we have to start at 14, 15, 16, doesn't matter who's seeing them, we have to start seeing them by themselves. Right. Talking about what they know, the names of their medications. And I think some providers are better at it than others. Yeah, so I think that's probably key more to talking about the fact that someday you will leave me, <laughs> you know, yeah. is getting them ready to take care of themselves. Exactly. I think that's right. So focusing more on self management and less right. on transfer when you do talk about it at a young age. Yeah. But again, there's the skills base part of that, where an educational part, where you have to be careful that you've addressed it, whether or not we will have an impact on their maturation process, I think, is somewhat debatable. Right, Dr. Wolfstorff gets cynical sometimes and will say things like, oh, they just need a parent transplant. Nothing <laughs> we do is gonna, yeah, question. I was wondering if there's any information about teaching adult providers to think in a more pediatric way. We are well, I, so separated. I think one of the issues yeah. is we have a conference in which we have adult and pediatricians, and so sometimes it's very useful for me to hear, oh, that's the way you guys think about the patients. Well, this is the way we think about the patients, and it's different. Yeah, so, so that was one of the more flexible in the mm -hmm. tradition and you know, how do you approach a, a young adult with type one diabetes? And yeah. how does it differ how I do it? And maybe I, I need to incorporate more of those techniques in my practice as people transition because yeah. they're not ready for what I would usually do. I agree. I mean this this one question that we asked like you know five hundred um the 500 adult providers, the CME, actually what the question said was, would it be helpful for you to have CMEs about young adult development and you know all this stuff? And what, what was it, 57%? It was like the lowest one, but still more than half. So I think that's definitely a viable idea. And could you do a project in which you developed CME modules that could be um, you know, a vehicle through a society or something for, for this population? I think it's a great idea. And maybe in the other direction. Right, right. It's because we do have to collaborate. Right. Um, I worked on the Today study. Oh yeah, and of course. And the um, the kids were transitioning out of the study because they had so much intense care during the study. Where's a lot of dialogue? Yeah. A lot of the same people that you collaborate with are involved. Um, one of the things we developed was a tool, a letter, and a document that looked retrospectively over the past five years of their care. Like how was their weight? How was their anyone's sleep? Yeah. Their blood pressure and some other parameters. And then we gave them a copy to give to the primary care physician yeah. and, and to, if they were moving on, um, to another physician. But it was very empowering, and, and at that point, many of them were kind of in the 16 to 18 mm -hmm. age So, you know, in, your, in some of your characteristics, if people receive a written document, um, it, does, it, it seemed very powerful, and it, yeah. it was something that they owned and it was their history, and that was very important. I think that's a great idea. I mean, we know from the adult provider survey and the patient survey that those things don't generally happen. I think it's a great idea. The Endocrine Society um, resources that I showed that link for, there's a document just like that that you can download and use. So I think what we need is to study that, right, to see if we can systematically look at whether that kind of thing helps, because it certainly would be a lower cost intervention than some of the other things that are on the table for transition. Great idea. Thank you very much. Thank you.